Hello everyone and welcome to our next lecture on the Baroque era. Now if there's one thing that you need to know about the Baroque era is that everything about it was gaudy and extravagant. So if you've ever been inside any old churches in Europe and it seems like every square inch of the walls and the ceilings is ornamented with some sort of design or something, then that's how you'll know that you're in a Baroque church. Uh, this era lasted for about 150 years, give or take, between 1600 and 1750. Here's another shot, a clear shot of the interior of a Baroque church. Um, as you can see, it's very, very ornate. During this era, a pretty significant change happened in the way that music was written. We start to shift from polyphony, and it's being replaced by a new musical texture called homophony. And um, polyphony, is, if you recall, is many voices all singing different things at the same time, and each part of the each musician, their part has an equal weight. Well, homophony is different. Homophony is one lead voice and the other parts in the background. And if you look at the slides after you finish listening, you'll see that I have an example of polyphony at the top and homophony at the bottom. And I've got Billy Joel singing Piano Man. Um, most pop music is homophony, which means you have a lead singer out front and then everything, all the other music is supporting the lead singer. So why did they want to do this? Well, a lot of it had to do with drama. If you put one voice in the forefront and you make that voice kind of the voice of the emotion that you're trying to portray, it's a lot easier to convey that to an audience rather than having um, you know, six different people singing six different lines at the same time. It's hard to understand what the emotional intent was of the composer. Um, because of this, homophony allowed uh, new forms of music to take shape, like the opera and the oratorio, and we'll have more on them a little bit later. An oratorio is just an opera with no staging or costumes, and it had religious lyrics, and it developed for a very specific reason, which we'll get into in a little bit. Baroque music and Baroque art are full of contrasts. Um, in art, people were getting a lot better at painting. I guess that's the most simple way to say it. Um, they were figuring out how to mimic natural light. And if you've ever tried to paint a picture, you realize that that's one of the most difficult things to do in art, is to mimic the way that light falls on different surfaces. Um, when they figured out how to do this, they were able to really have these contrasting images where you have things in shadow and things in light and it really made the paintings come to life. In music, bold contrasts between high and low and loud and soft were made possible due to um, the engineering of new types of instruments. Up until this point, instruments could pretty much just play at one volume. You started playing and that was, you know, if you wanted to be softer, then you just stopped playing. There was no there were no gradations, but starting in the Baroque era, 
people started to figure out how to do this with musical instruments. And so you got new musical pieces being composed that showed off the ability of these instruments to play very loud or very softly. Here's an example of a Baroque era painting. This is a Rembrandt and it's called Night Watch. It's one of the most famous paintings in Western art. Look at the way that the light falls on the angel and the men in the foreground and the men in the background, the light slowly recedes into darkness and some things are just completely pitch black. Um, again, this is something, this is techniques that were pioneered during the Baroque era. In all the arts, no matter whether we're talking about music or drama or painting, the expression of one particular emotion, which they called an effect, became the most important aim. So what did the composer want you to walk out of the performance hall feeling? That's what an effect is, and that's what the entire aim of Baroque art was. It was about expressing a certain emotion. Baroque music, art, and architecture was also very ornate. Everything was very intricate. The architecture, as we've seen, was like this. But musical melodies also intertwined with one another in new and interesting ways, especially instrumental music of this time. Now, of course, music never exists in a vacuum, and a lot of the a lot of the really big advances that came through the Baroque era came because music was literally being exported to all the corners of Western Europe. Uh, at this time, you had various royal families that would marry and intermarry, and whenever a new king or queen was crowned, she might take her favorite musician from her court at her previous residence and move it to her new court. For example, um, you might have a queen, or I mean a princess, living in Germany, and she might marry the king of England. Well, if that's the case, she'd bring her whole retinue with her, including her court musicians. When her court musicians arrived in England, the existing musicians would teach them things and vice versa, and um, music would really become more homogenous, but also that's what allows it to, to really push forward and break new barriers because new people are constantly inserting new ideas into the repertoire. So let's talk a little bit about vocal music of the Baroque era. I want you to stop for a second and think about what image comes to your mind when you think about opera. Just what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Is it something like this? Well, if it is, um, you're in for a surprise because this is opera, but this is not Baroque opera. Uh, this is 19th century opera, and we're going to get to that eventually. But for right now, I want you to kind of push the fat lady in the horns out of your mind for something different. So, opera was pretty much... Uh, it was invented in what we like to think of as its modern form in the Baroque era. Uh, all it is is it's a drama, which is another word for a play, sung from beginning to end. There is no speaking in opera. Every word is sung. That includes the dialogue. 
It was based on the drama of the ancient Greek theater. So at this time, people were starting to rediscover classical antiquity, which is about um, between 700 and 100 BC. Um, these are not based on earlier medieval works. You'd think that maybe they'd take some ideas from earlier time periods and, uh, and, and make operas around them, but really a lot of the works that were composed during the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance had already been forgotten by this time because a lot of works were not well kept. You know, they might be shoved in some, you know, back room somewhere and just forgotten about versus the texts of uh, ancient Greek and Roman antiquity. They'd always kind of been around. So you're not going to see any operas based on uh, von Bingen's play of virtues. The earliest operas were not held in, you know, the big halls that we think about uh, operas being put on now, like the Met in New York. These were performed in private, small theaters for the nobility, for your kings and queens and all of the aristocrats. Um, you know, the palaces of the rich and the, the nobility were so big that they actually had their own little theaters inside them. Now, your public opera houses first started to appear not too long after, and they first appeared in Venice in Italy in 1637. By the early 1700s, even royal opera houses were open to the public who were charged admission. Why? Because the nobility saw a money-making opportunity, and they said, you know, if we, we've got the theater already, why not charge admission? We can even charge kind of a high price, and, you know, you're going to the opera not just to see the show, but also to show off your status, that you can afford an opera ticket, and you can hobnob with the nobility. Now we're going to spend some time talking about the various pieces of the Baroque Opera House. You've got boxes where the rich and powerful sit. You can still see these in theaters today. The box seats, which are up on the sides of the walls of the theater, are the most expensive seats in the house. You have the bailiff, and the bailiff's job, of course, was to keep order in the theater, make sure nobody was causing disturbance. Now here's something that's interesting. There were merchants in the Baroque Opera House that worked the same way that your beer and your hot dog salesmen work at baseball games. So they would literally walk up and down the aisles while a performance was going on selling refreshments. Now, they might not have uh, yelled out, beer here, or whatever. That It might not have been that kind of a disturbing thing, but it still seems a little bit strange to our eyes to think about a merchant, you know, selling things up and down the aisle at a quote-unquote serious musical performance. Finally, on this page, we've got libretto. And libretto just means little book in Italian. And this was the complete text of an opera. Now, why would you need this? There's a couple reasons why. One, sometimes over the course of a song, um, you might not be able to understand what's being sung because, again, everything was so intricate and ornate. There were so many vocal flourishes that the words might have gotten lost in there. And also, uh, operas were almost universally performed in Italian for many years. So if you were watching an Italian opera in Germany, you wouldn't necessarily speak Italian, and the libretto would provide the text translated into your language. 
couple more words from the Baroque opera. We've got the pit, and the pit still exists today. The pit is just a lowered area between the audience and the stage where the orchestra sits and plays. So um, this is the area where the musicians all sit, and it might be interesting for you to know that musicians that play at operas or musicals never really get to see the show that they play. I've played in several musicals, and I've never once been able to see on the stage what's going on on the stage. So you'll play, you know, six or seven weeks in a row and never actually see the action on the stage. You'll just hear it and your conductor who can see what's going on on the stage will cue you when it's time to come in. And we also have impresarios. This is a word that we still use today and it has its roots in the Baroque opera. This is the name of a producer who put up the money, cast the singers, and just kind of was the financial backer of the opera. Now, sometimes impresarios um, owned the opera house, and they were able to really make a lot of money. They were the people, just like today, the financiers, they're the ones that really make the major money. Um, when the church forbade operas during Lent, Lent is the time 40 days before Easter, um, impresarios had empty opera houses and they said well what are we going to do we're losing money here because the church is not letting us have our operas during this time well they they thought of an idea they said what if we really strip the theater down and we don't have any staging or costumes and we put on operas that are religiously themed and we won't even call them operas we'll call them oratorios how would that be and the church said all right that's okay and so that's what they did. Um, so during Lent, opera houses hosted oratorios. And you might remember, um, you might have heard Handel's Messiah. That is an oratorio, and we will talk about that in a little bit. So here's a picture of a Baroque opera house, just to drive home all the points that we were talking about before. Here we have our box seats where the rich and the powerful are. Here on the floor, sometimes there weren't even seats at all. Sometimes this was kind of an open standing area, like if you go to a club concert today. But a lot of times there were seats set up, especially in the, um, in the, the houses of nobility. Here's the stage, of course. And down here is the pit. And the pit is where the musicians sit. And as you can see, they are their heads are completely under the stage level. The only person that can see is the conductor right here. You have the bailiff here whose job it is to keep order. Unfortunately there are no merchants pictured in this picture but um, they, they were there. They were walking up and down the aisles selling their wares. An important part of the Baroque opera was the advent of a new type of singer called a virtuoso. And a virtuoso was sort of the first diva, um, or the man version of a diva. I'm not sure what the <laughs> Italian equivalent is, if it's the same word or not. But these are soloists who improvised extravagant ornamentation in a very showy style. So they knew they were good singers and they wanted the audience to know it. And they were the rock stars of their day. They were really popular because the whole, you know, there might be a place where the whole opera stops 
and the, the virtuoso steps forward and sings this amazing solo and everyone applauds afterwards and then the virtuoso steps back into place and the opera continues so that is where this this whole tradition came from the last aspect of baroque opera i'd like to tell you about is one of the most unique and one of the most kind of disturbing um at this time, it was very popular for composers to write extremely high parts for the men in the operas. Now, this wasn't because there were no women allowed on stage. There were plenty of women in Baroque opera. Um, but for whatever reason, the sound of a high male voice was something that audiences really wanted to hear. And to achieve that effect, to have a grown man being able to sing what is in effect a woman's soprano part, uh, singers were castrated as young boys to maintain the high range of their voices. Um, now, before you start feeling too, too bad about these, these folks, uh, they were the millionaires of their day. They were very, very famous. Women loved them. They went crazy for castrati. Uh, if you ever want to see kind of a behind-the-scenes view of what it was like to be one of these castrati, watch the film Farinelli. That's where this uh, picture is from. It really does a good job explaining, um, you know, the the life of a castrati. Uh, it's not family-friendly. Do not <laughs> do not show this to your kids uh, unless you you really really talk to them about what it's about. But it's a it's a remarkable inside look about the life of a castrati both on and off the stage. Now, castrati continued on well into the uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, in fact, the last castrati is believed to have died in 1922, which is pretty incredible. Now, by this time, castrati had left the opera stage and they only performed in choirs. In fact, this particular castrati sang in the Vatican choir. Um, but at the end of the 19th century, uh, I think it was Pope Leo XIII um, kind of forbade any more castrati. He, he, he knew it was a bad idea. and uh, But you are still grandfathered in, I guess. And so this is, we actually have a recording of the last living castrati. And if you look at the slides, you'll be able to see um, and listen to that that recording. So make sure and check that out. All right, this ends part one of our Baroque era lecture. Um, stay tuned for part two. If you have any questions, as always, feel free to shoot me an email at john.schaller at wvstateu.edu. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.